0: And welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the Senate's December 23rd deadline before their Christmas recess as time runs out for Senate Democrats to get voting rights and the bill Back Better bill passed and assess whether there will be a rules change to allow voting rights to get around the filibuster and whether bill Back Better will continue to languish. Joining us is Samuel Moyne the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School, and a Professor of History at Yale University. He's the author of The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, and most recently, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. We will discuss his recent article at The Guardian, If Democrats Return to Centrism, They Are Doomed to Lose Against Trump. Biden was once touted as the new FDR. That ambition is fast-dying as our Democrats' hopes of remaining in power, and whether presidents who get elected as reformers become targets of the establishment and are made victims of the perception of failure if they don't deliver on promises, even if it's not their fault. Then we'll speak with Lloyd Green, an attorney based in New York who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Department of Justice a contributing writer at The Guardian, where his latest article is Trump's lackeys would rather defy U.S. Congress than anger their old boss. Sad. He joins us to discuss the race between the law catching up with Donald Trump to reduce him down to the criminal level where he belongs and Biden sinking poll numbers combined with Republican rigging of the next elections that could make a Trump comeback possible. Then finally, we'll examine today's virtual summit between China, Xi Jinping, and President Putin in what is the 37th time the two leaders of the nuclear-armed countries increasingly at odds with the U.S. have met since 2013. Joining us is Michael Swain, director of the Quincy Institute's East Asia program and one of the most prominent American scholars on Chinese security studies. Previously, he worked for nearly 20 years as a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, specializing in Chinese defense and foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and East Asia international relations. He also advises the U.S. government on Asian security issues, and his books include Conflict and Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific Region, A Strategic Net Assessment. We will assess the depth of China and Russia's closer relationship, and since China has not recognized Putin's seizure of Crimea, speculate how she would react to a russian military offensive in ukraine or would that provide she with cover to go after taiwan and before we go to our first guest in order to be free of any association with medical fraud and political fiction i recently resigned from kpfk pacificus los angeles station so background briefing now is completely independent and remains commercial free corporate free but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Samuel Moyne, who's the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and a Professor of History at Yale University. He's the author of The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, and most recently, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. And he has a recent article at The Guardian, If Democrats return to centrism, they are doomed to lose against Trump. Biden was once touted as the new FDR. That ambition is fast dying, as our Democrats' hopes for remaining in power. Welcome to Background Briefing, Samuel Moyne.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And the window to get these important bills through the Senate for the Senate Democrats are closing. They had a meeting on Monday, the caucus with Schumer, and then again on Tuesday. And then uh, also on Tuesday, Joe Manchin presided over a meeting in his basement Senate office with Senators Testa Kane and King, who were working on a rules change to get Voting rights passed, along with GOP Senators Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Michael Rounds, Roy Blunt, and Mitt Romney. But apparently no agreement was made. So if they don't get a rules change to get voting rights around the filibuster, that's not going to happen before the 23rd of this month, which is fast approaching. And bill Back Better appears to be languishing on the back burner. And it's quite possible that the concern that progressive Democrats had in the House, which is why they held up passing the bipartisan infrastructure bill, was that once that was passed, there'd be no incentive for mansion and Sinema to go along with the bill Back Better. So it's not looking good for the Democrats or for Biden.
1: No, it's not. And it's a pity in retrospect that the progressive Democrats were induced to sacrifice the only leverage they had, which was to hold up in the House uh, the infrastructure bill, as you mentioned, uh, which, you know, leaves nothing other to convince Manchin in the Senate to go for build back better, even in watered-down form, than kind of moral appeals and party unity. Uh, And, you know, the same is true of Kirsten Sinema, who's predicted that it can wait and it probably will wait into the new year and who knows whether it will not pass at all or you know uh, just kind of die a death by a thousand cuts and pass in some much reduced form since you know it is sad because it's already much reduced a shadow of its former self on on the democratic side uh you know h r four and and the need to strengthen and and restore voting rights to the American people. Um, as you say, that's a different calculus because there's no way of avoiding the filibuster in the Senate on that one. So it would have to involve some kind of, you know, either, you know, the unthinkable for Biden getting rid of the filibuster or some kind of cross partisan agreement, which it sounds like, uh, the Democrats are exploring with Mitt Romney and others, but how that would happen and whether Republicans can join in, uh, you know, democratic reform is, is seems dubious. Uh, And so we, we are, you know, in some ways in the last days of a closing window uh, as hope dies, that the Democrats will save the country and themselves.
0: Well, in terms of voting rights, the clock is really ticking on that because, as Bernie Sanders just said today, we want both of them, meaning Build Back right. Better and the Voting Rights Bill. But Voting Rights right. has more of a time issue because there are states already developing their district mapping. Correct. If we don't move quickly, it could be too late. Well, look at the situation mm-hmm. for the re-election of Raphael Warnock in Georgia. Without him. They wouldn't be in the majority. And right. he's up in the next cycle in twenty twenty two, next year. And you'd think that the Democrats would collectively recognize that they'll be in the minority unless they help out Warnock and others.
1: Well, I think that's right. Of course, they'll they'll be in the minority, you know, perhaps regardless if they don't develop an appealing program. You know, it may be tough to write out twenty twenty two, but in 2024, when there's a referendum on the Biden presidency, you know, possibly pitting him against Trump, you know, it's certainly going to matter to have voter suppression overcome if that's possible. And and, and yet, he, he, that, that pales beside the priority of developing, you know, an appealing program that can forge a, 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 a transracial working class Majority. I take your point, though, on the priority of, of the Voting Rights Act, although it should be said that um, it, it, if Bill Back Better isn't given priority itself, then some of the largest, especially for uh, children in poverty in the relief bill back in the day, will expire and leave a lot of children uh, to you know, fall back below the poverty line. So it's really hard to say what what is an emergency because it seems like there are a lot of emergencies and if the Democrats deal with none of them, they'll be held to pay.
0: And the child tax credit expires at the end of the year, the last payment being today. So right. it is a pretty grim landscape, but I don't for the life of me understand why... Uh, Biden is so low in the polls, and why he's getting such bad press and being beaten up over inflation, because there's indications that on some of the drivers of inflation, like the price of gas at the pump, it's going down. Most of the economic indicators are are pretty good. And, you know, Mm -hmm. going back to the Carville's adage of it's the economy stupid, as far as that's concerned... The Democrats should be doing much better. Uh, ever since Afghanistan, the press seemed to have sort of started to paint him as kind of the reincarnation of Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter Correct. lost because of inflation and because of a perception that of, of kind of fecklessness. And I just wonder whether the hand of the establishment is in here, making life miserable for any Democratic president who comes in as a reformer, as Jimmy Carter did, and as Biden did. Am I being paranoid?
1: I don't think so. I mean, it's hard to explain otherwise. And, and, you know, it just is, you know, you should add to this, the syndrome of someone who, um, you know, over promises, but can only underperform because of the structural obstacles. And with so narrow a majority and with the anti-democratic You know, institution of the Senate as a whole and of the filibuster within its voting rules, it's even if you have a national majority at your back, which Biden does, it turns out to be very difficult to legislate. So, you know, no one's suggesting that it it was going to be easy, but the tanking of Biden's popularity have has just made it unexpectedly difficult for him to push through these crucial bills. And, you know, the fear is that infrastructure, which, you know, does a lot, albeit, um, you know, over a, a longer period and not for the worst off and not for, you know, the, the kind of working class, except in so far as they get jobs and benefit from, you know, public works and such, um, you know, it, it, it may not seal the deal with the electorate, not just in 2022 but 2024 but i agree with you that you know the and anyone who tries to you know buck the system and let's assume for a moment that biden has seen the light after his own years of centrism and is trying to do so will face enormous headwinds not just you know, because of governmental institutions, but because of, you know, donors and media and skullduggery. So I I don't think you're paranoid in the least because it's, it's quite hard to understand exactly why Biden's, uh, you know, popularity hasn't, you know, basically, you know, improved in response to the passing of the relief and infrastructure bills. And notwithstanding the Afghan you know, disaster, perceived disaster, it's one element in a larger picture that, as you say, seems like it should benefit Biden, not hurt him as badly as it has.
0: So is that to say, then, that the establishment's got it covered? They own the Republicans outright, but all they need to do is peel off a couple of Democratic senators, and they've done that with Manchin and Cinema, and progressive <laughs> legislation is just stalled?
1: Well, the, you know, basically, I mean, and, and we've seen that already in in the kind of preemptive uh, minimizing of these bills all the way along. Um, so again, BBB, even if it passes, will be much less money and, and different programs paid for differently than at the start. And that already reflects the power of, of, of these crucial, you know, uh, centrist voters in the House and especially the the Senate, but I mean, I I think that we we are in a situation in which um, the you know Biden came in with a popular mandate, which sort of like Obama, he he's failed to exploit. You rarely see him going to the people trying to challenge the establishment that's blocking him. Um, Another example would be on Supreme Court reform, where he, you know, where his bills, even if they pass, could end up, you know, being further, you know, trashed by the judiciary. And yet he seems to just accept it as an immovable object. And so I I think that, you know, this around seems like a, a, a a a failure overall, because just as in the Obama years, the Democrats are, are in a way failing to break their addiction to the wealthy and powerful and, you know, trying to piece together a coalition of the working class and vulnerable. And, you know, it's not to say that, you know, the setting hasn't changed and much more has been possible this time. Uh, certainly, these bills are impressive relative to any president, you know, back before Carter. But that doesn't mean they're going to be enough. And as you say, if the polls don't reflect the policy, then we've we've got other problems, too. Uh, that wasn't true for FDR, who passed you know, much bigger, more generous bills but saw the the populace kind of strengthen its loyalty to him, and yet the reverse seems to be happening for Biden.
0: But just in the last couple of minutes, is it because we're in a fact-free environment now that somehow the Democrats and the press cannot examine these obstructions, particularly from Manchin and Cinema, more honestly? In as the reason. That these bills are being whittled down is that mansion and cinema say it 's going to increase the deficit well, the reason it 's going to increase the deficit if and not by very much, according to the c b o any rate the reason it 's increasing right. the deficit is because neither mansion nor cinema will allow it to be paid for with raising taxes on the rich and corporations so th- it 's a big lie, and the other big lie is about the filibuster where it 's some court of sacred. Senate tradition, it was barely ever used in the 240 years of this country. Very, very few times was ever used. It was used quite a bit during the civil rights obstruction from the Dixiecrats. But lately, in the last decade or so, it's just become routine. You can look at the graph. It's just spiked completely through the That's ceiling. Right. So right. it's not a tradition. It's a, it's no. a sign of a broken system. Correct.
1: No, I mean, I think, you know, the press is much more interested in cancel culture and, you know, wokeness controversies than in bread and butter issues. And it it could focus on, you know, mansion and cinema much more than it does. And of course, it could kind of denaturalize the filibuster and show it not just to be a tool to beat back civil rights, but not one that was you know used before and it, it has become a kind of you know instrument of of entrenching gridlock in our time and there's really no case in its favor and it, then it really would be up to biden to to kind of wean himself of his his need to you know depend on any republicans in the case of the democracy bill and you know there'd still be mansion and cinema to please but I, I'm I'm confident that if Biden took a more populist approach uh, and kind of got the nation behind him, they're more powerful than the interests to which Mansion and Cinema are answering in whittling down and possibly cutting loose the Build Back Better uh, bill.
0: Samuel Moyne, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me again. And again, I've been speaking with Samuel Moyne, who's a Henry R. Lewis Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and Professor of History at Yale University. He's the author of The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, and most recently, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. And he has a recent article at The Guardian, if Democrats return to centrism, they are doomed to lose against Trump. Biden was once touted as the new FDR. That ambition is fast-dying as our Democrats' hopes of remaining in power. We're going to take a brief station break. we back discussing the race between the law catching up with Donald Trump to reduce him down to the criminal level where he belongs and Biden sinking poll numbers combined with Republican rigging of the next elections that could make a Trump comeback possible. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lloyd Green, an attorney based in New York who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Department of Justice and is a contributing writer at The Guardian, where his latest article is, Trump's lackeys would rather defy U.S. Congress than anger their old boss. Sad. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lloyd Green. Thank you. And you mentioned in your article at The Guardian, Liz Cheney's rhetorical question in announcing that the select committee is going to charge Mark Meadows with contempt of Congress, which now the full House has voted on, at least the Democratic majority voted on. So I thought it was very interesting what she said, and you quoted in your piece that She said, Mr. Meadows' testimony will bear on another key question before the committee. Did Donald Trump, through action or inaction, corruptly seek to abstract or impede Congress's official proceedings to count electoral votes? And that language mirrors, as you point out, Section 1512C of Title 18 of the U.S. Code, a felony punishable by as much as 20 years in prison. So is that a warning shot, or do you think that's a prediction on her part? I think
2: it is a roadmap for what she is considering and for what the committee may be considering. What she is signaling is the committee will gather information. This is not just going to be a political exercise, but it will also be an information gathering um, effort. And in the course of uncovering what they may uncover, it is possible that the Congress may refer to the Department of Justice a recommendation that the former president be prosecuted for actually violating that section. Obviously, it is not Congress's role to prosecute. That's the role of the executive branch and the Department of Justice, uh, to be precise. And so what she is saying is, depending on what the committee unturns, it is possible that the committee might recommend to the house in turn that house refer to main justice um a criminal referral asking for a particular investigation going back in time there used to be special counsel or special prosecutors these days and there used to also be independent counsel independent the independent counsel law has essentially been allowed to sunset it is possible though that the Congress goes ahead and tells Maine Justice, we think we have enough evidence here that warrants your consideration and that in turn, you Maine Justice should go ahead and convene a grand jury to look into these specific charges and using this these set of facts, documents, evidence as a basis for that investigation. At the end of the day, a grand jury subpoena usually comes with more weight than a congressional subpoena. And you can end up having ex-Trump administration officials who have hesitated to testify, stonewall the committee, who would otherwise be be playing with much more of a loaded gun if they elected to fight a uh, subpoena issued by a grand jury. So I think that's where she's going.
0: But in terms of compelling Steve Bannon and Meadows and uh, Jeffrey Clark and Cash Patel and others to testify, my understanding is that criminal contempt of Congress doesn't deliver that testimony, whereas civil contempt would, even though civil contempt takes a long, lot longer. And of course, these characters are practitioners of running out the clock
2: this point, I mean, you're touching on something, and and I get it. But at the end of the day, contempt of Congress, in a sense, is an adjunct, is an auxiliary to the larger congressional investigation. And in turn, the only thing that the congressional investigation could yield most likely is a referral to main justice and a report. They don't care about a report. They themselves can take their chances. With contempt, go back in time. Steve Bannon testified when it came to Roger Stone and Robert Mueller. That was part of a special. That was part of a special counsel's proceeding. It's very different from the House. It's one thing for someone to go ahead and flex and strut and perform in front of a congressional subpoena. It's another thing for someone to flex, strut, and be performative in the face of a grand jury subpoena. And again, the, if you want to say what is the ultimate prize, the ultimate prize is for the committee to figure out what did or didn't Donald Trump do. And based on what he did and did not do, whether or not that those facts would or would not support at least a recommendation to mean justice uh, that deals with a possible violation of the criminal code.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Lloyd Green, who's an attorney based in New York, who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Department of Justice and is a contributing writer at The Guardian, where his latest article is, Trump's lackeys would rather defy U.S. Congress than anger their old boss. Sad. So in a broader sense, though, Lloyd, is this a race between the committee The DA in um, New York, who's apparently just had testimony from one of the Mazar's accountants about Trump's, I I assume it's to do with Deutsche Bank and who guaranteed those lots of loans that Trump got when he was blackballed by by Wall Street because of uh, how many bankruptcies and how many banks he'd taken down. So that's happening. And then you've got the ruling by U.S. District Judge Trevor McFadden, who's a Trump appointee, just uh, on Tuesday, basically giving Trump a chance to appeal, but nevertheless upholding the right of the House Ways and Means Committee to get Trump's tax returns. So is this where the race is between whether or not Trump will actually be held to account on the one hand or the fact that the Republican Party is all behind Trump, which is essentially it's his party now, and they're engaged in such comprehensive and massive voter suppression that Trump could get elected uh, simply through by foul means as the to fair. Okay, let's
2: start with the idea that there's a race out there. So far as the District Attorney in Manhattan goes, so far as the uh, Attorney General in New York State and her investigation, in a sense, there is less of a race. Um, they're going to be doing what they do, regardless of uh, the midterm elections. That's not the thing that they're busy worrying about, that they're busy looking at. Um, To the extent that there's any race, it would come up in connection with any applicable statute of limitation. That would be the only item that's out there that becomes of serious concern to them. Uh, They're prosecutors, and the Supreme Court has recognized that prosecutors are not the same thing as a congressional investigation. Moving to the congressional investigations, there are two other but That's a separate bucket. One part of that bucket uh, goes to the investigation into January 6. And that's where the political calendar comes in. Um, you would assume that the uh, select committee, the special committee, that's looking into the events of january 6th would want to be finished with their report by um, spring of this coming year 2022 if they have a lot of ground to cover they may or may not get there by that point in time but i think that's what they want to deal with Um, against that type of timing against that kind of calendar Yes, the fights that's around Steve Bannon and Mark Meadows could well go beyond that. And then it falls into the category of it is what it is. And the new Republican Congress, if there was a case still pending to hold them in contempt, would, base, would likely say, you know, well, we've had enough and roll up the investigation. That having been said, if there is a referral, though, that has been made to main justice, that's a different story. The change in parties uh, would not go to, would not likely impact a substantive referral as opposed to a referral for contempt to main justice. The next thing you mentioned, the tax investigation. um, That, well, could wind up bumping into legal deadlines. You had a decision from the U.S. District Court for the District of D.C. just yesterday The House would probably want to fast track any litigation that comes out of it, any sort of challenge. That's not necessarily in Donald Trump's interest to play along with that. He may well go ahead and ask for broader consideration by the uh, D.C. Circuit, uh, saying that he wants what they call an on-bank hearing. He may do that. He may not do that. We'll see. But that's a definite possibility with regard to his tax returns. The last piece, so far as the litigation calendar goes with Donald Trump, um, goes to the decision to have the National Archives produce its, I call them pieces of paper, the records that they ended up getting from the Trump administration that are being litigated. Again, that's the type of thing that can go to the broader D.C. circuit. Alternatively, um, that doesn't most likely, though, this the next stop for this will be the U.S. Supreme Court. I think he's hoping that he would get a better hearing from a more conservative court than he did from the D.C. Circuit. Three judges who ruled against him yesterday in the D.C. Circuit are all Democratic appointees. uh, And he's just hoping that there are going to be people receptive to his arguments. So far as executive privilege goes and shrouding his documents, key people to watch in that type of uh, Supreme court case would be John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh, because they do come with executive branch uh, experience. Brett Kavanaugh was staff secretary. That's an important position. He knows how presidential papers get handled. It is Quite possible that if John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh align themselves on this one with the January 6th committee and with the Biden administration, that you could see Brett Kavanaugh actually writing the court's opinion, given his particular knowledge of having served in the staff secretary's office during the uh, Bush 43 presidency.
0: And would that be a a ruling in Trump's favor on the executive privilege?
2: Um, So far, looking at the tea leaves, um, it's difficult to see a non-incumbent president, a former president to be precise, asserting executive privilege that collides with the position of an incumbent president, um, at least on the facts in this case. So you could see, any, you've, in the past, you've seen the Supreme Court defer to prosecutors um, in New York City, uh, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. When it came to Trump's records, you could see that again with regard to the lawsuit involving the National Archives. But again, no one knows. It's a matter of wait and see. Uh, the briefing on that end hasn't started and figure it will be about two weeks before that boss starts moving again.
0: But in your article at The Guardian, uh, Lloyd Green, Trump's lackeys would rather defy U.S. Congress than anger their old boss, sad. You point out that both Bannon and Mark Meadows are angling for a job in, in another Trump administration starting in 2024, assuming he runs. And he's certainly suggesting and working on running at this moment. So given that, are they delusional? I mean, or do they recognize that with the enormous amount of voter suppression out there and the Democrats in the Senate have only got a few, what, less than a week or so to, to the 23rd to do something about uh, stopping the voter suppression and they don't seem to be capable of passing that or build back better. So they're in a kind of state of paralysis. Nobody seems to think that that's likely to happen, that or at least both bills are likely to pass. So is this what's going on, that the calculus is that it's a safe bet that Trump will become the next president?
2: There are a lot of steps along the way before Donald Trump becomes next president. Here are some things to remember. Joe Biden right now is an unpopular president. What gives fuel to the possibility of a Trump candidacy is Joe Biden's weak ratings. For all the talk of Bill back better... The national focus is elsewhere. Politically, more of the country is focused on inflation than on build back better. More of the country is focused on crime than on build back better. And the problem with that becomes if the country's priorities are one place and Joe Biden's priorities are elsewhere and he cannot on his legislative package, his own competency then gets called into question, which then in turn fuels a Trump bid are the Republicans up to mischief when it comes to elections election laws and election rules? Absolutely. But it's not happening in a, in a mere vacuum. You have a president who is unpopular and an unpopular Joe Biden fuels talk of a Trump presidency and emboldens Donald Trump.
0: Right. And the one thing you didn't mention there, along with inflation, and crime, I think the overriding anxiety out there in the electorate, is COVID. Would COVID, you
2: agree? COVID is an anxiety. But at this point, you're also getting COVID fatigue among the public. You have a recalcitrance at this point among a segment of the Trump base about getting vaccinated. And that's where America is at. We've passed 800,000 deaths. And it's unclear what more Joe Biden can do. You go back to last January, and the Biden administration was sort of acting like George Bush and W. Bush with mission accomplished. Didn't happen that way. Uh, You look at the numbers coming out of England on uh, the latest strain of COVID, America could be in for a rough winter. And all that anxiety, as you rightly point out, fuels even more concern. Think of this way. Going back in time, the assumption was from this White House that if you ended up dealing with COVID, you would end up dealing successfully with the economy. It hasn't exactly worked out that way. Places that have seriously combated COVID have also seen their employment stagnate. Look at New York City. New York City's unemployment is is close to 10%. New York City, on the other hand, after getting hit hard heavily early on by COVID, has taken some very serious steps to curb its spread. But it has come at a significant economic cost. You look into other parts of the country, more Republican parts, you're getting greater economic growth, but you also have, after that initial outburst on the East Coast of COVID, you've had higher death rates. So there seems to be some sort of trade. It's not a it almost moves inversely, and you don't have a president who has, at this point, the confidence of a large enough segment of the American public, and a president who doesn't, cannot deliver the kind of message, assuming anyone could deliver that kind of message, that ends up grabbing everyone's attention and gets them to go ahead and vaccinate and and get booster shots.
0: Well, with 78 percent of Republicans believing that Biden is not a legitimate president and all this stop the steal stuff that's being hammered into the population by Fox and Sinclair, et cetera, little wonder that Biden has no traction, at least with almost half of the country who voted for Trump. So, not, in-
2: Again, not questioning that, but right. if you're a president, you take the country as it is and that is be, that's a pro, you're right it is a problem for getting a message out there but by the same measure the public has now labored with covid since about march of 2020 you're now heading into january 2022 and there's just the tiredness of mm-hmm. dealing with it wisely or otherwise
0: well just and, in the last minute then lloyd green If the case against Trump became clear, and there are many cases against him, and if the Liz Cheney uh, rhetorical question comes to pass that he is guilty of obstructing Congress, would having him in an orange jumpsuit make any difference to his base? Would it change the dynamic in this country? Would it prick the bubble of invulnerability? This man has been one head, step ahead of the sheriff all of his life.
2: If you're talking about an orange jumpsuit, if Donald Trump were charged and convicted, it would change the calculus with regard to Donald Trump. But Donald Trump, though, has been did and has done and will continue to do is play upon the social fault lines that exist within the United States. And those fault lines are not disappearing anytime soon. And the Democrats don't know how to make them go away. And if you're the GOP and what your goal is, if your goal is obstruction as opposed to legislation and to governing, um, you're good with just playing on those fault lines about playing on those cultural issues. And at the same time, the Democrats seem to be oblivious or flat-footed in addressing them. You saw the Virginia governor's race. You had a Democratic candidate say, essentially, it's not up to the parents as to what gets taught in the school. And particularly for suburban parents, that becomes, really? We pay all this money in taxes, and you're telling us essentially to sit down and shut up? And the Democrats have now come out with a workaround on that. Crime is another issue. Crime as a campaign issue works. And the Democrats seem to have forgotten about it. Richard Nixon knew that when he ran in 1968. George H.W. Bush knew that when he ran for president in 1988. Donald Trump knew that when he ran for president in 2016. It almost cost, George, it almost cost Joe Biden election in 2020 crime and as, as an issue. And the Democrats seem to be floundering over coming up with a response.
0: Well, Lloyd Green, I thank you for joining us and for basically uh, giving, giving the Democrats a wake-up call. I appreciate it. Finally, take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Lloyd Green, who's an attorney based in New York, who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Department of Justice and is a contributing writer at The Guardian, where his latest article is, Trump's lackeys would rather defy U.S. Congress than anger their old boss. Sad. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining today's virtual summit between China's Xi Jinping and President Putin of Russia. (music) Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Swain, who's director of the Quincy Institute's East Asia Program and one of the most prominent American scholars of Chinese security studies. Previously, he worked for nearly 20 years as a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, specializing in Chinese defense and foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and East Asia international relations. He also advises the U.S. government on Asian security issues, and his books include Remaining Aligned on the Challenges Facing Taiwan and Conflict and Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific Region, A Strategic Net Assessment. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Swain.
3: Thank you very much. Glad to be with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And President Putin of Russia and President Xi Jinping of China had their virtual summit today, Wednesday. And this is the 37th time the two men have met since 2013. And, of course, they are at least rhetorically very close. Xi Jinping addressed Vladimir Putin as his old friend, uh, while Putin called his Chinese counterpart his dear friend and his esteemed friend. So beyond those pleasantries, is there a solid core to this relationship?
3: Oh yes, yeah, certainly. I think there's a solid core to it. Uh, I wouldn't call it a full-fledged, um, uh, certainly not a formal alliance per se. Um, but there are there's a convergence of interest here between Russia and China that um, both sides recognize, and uh, they see as meeting and requiring. Um, some greater indications of their mutual support for one another. Uh, And I think that's what we've seen in this recent uh, virtual conversation between the two leaders. They're trying to show each other and the world that they have uh, each other's back to a certain degree um, without carrying that over to any sort of explicit security guarantee.
0: So how would you compare it to what Nixon and Kissinger engineered back in the Cold War with the opening to China in 1972, the idea that the U.S. was in the catbird seat, able to play Russia off against China. Is China in the catbird seat now?
3: Um, I wouldn't say necessarily that, that China is in the catbird seat. I don't think it's necessarily going to be able to play Russia off against the United States. Um, I don't think it wants to get dragged uh, extensively into the Russia-NATO confrontation. Um, I think that its its um, relationship with with Russia is certainly designed to try to exert some leverage or push back against what has been seen as a um, excessive Western um, effort to uh, contain and and threaten, in some ways, both countries. Um, So it's really uh, not so much playing off Russia against uh, the West as much as it is uh, moving closer to uh, Russia in order to have them both, to some degree, coordinate their actions um, against uh, against the West.
0: So according to the Russian readout, the two leaders uh, discussed coming up with some kind of independent financial infrastructure. And clearly that's aimed at getting around the Treasury red notices, particularly now that the Europeans and the United States are warning Putin against going to war in Ukraine and that there'll be severe economic consequences, including Russia being cut off from the SWIFT interbanking system. So... Is that what's going on there? That they—I mean—could they actually pull off something that could immunize them against sanctions from the West and particularly from the U.S.?
3: Well, I—I I think that's what certainly is going on here. They're trying to establish this um, so-called independent financial infrastructure to reduce their reliance on uh, Western financial institutions and their possible vulnerability to sanctions and and other sorts of economic. Um, punishment methods by the United States and by the West. Now, how successful they'll be in doing this I think remains to be seen. I mean, I'm not an expert such that I could make a uh, really uh, authoritative comment on this, but uh, I think that it would be very difficult for them to be able to establish a genuinely independent financial infrastructure given their great interaction and integration Each of of their two respective countries with the global financial structure, um, which is indeed dominated by by Western banking interests, Um, as long as they remain heavily uh, trading with the West and uh, having investments there and and having investments from the West in their countries, it's going to be hard for them to really establish what what I think would be an independent financial infrastructure per se. They can certainly reduce their exposure to some degree, but to what extent, I, I really couldn't say.
0: So, obviously, this, what always bothers both Putin and Xi Jinping, and of course, they were both, Russia and China were annoyed with the summit for democracy that the White House recently had that they were excluded from. And obviously, in today's meeting, you know, virtual meeting between Putin and Xi, one of the first things that came up was that Putin said I'll see you in February for the uh, Olympic Games given that right. the US right. has a diplomatic boycott which other European countries have followed through on but when they talk about dignity does anybody take that seriously what you know Xi Jinping and Putin our dignity is being attacked because you criticize us on human rights and stuff does that carry any weight with the domestic audience I'm not sure that repressing your own people is particularly dignified
3: <laughs> well of course you have that angle that um, it's hard to to really protest about being uh, in some way insulted when uh, in in a variety of different ways you're you're repressing your own population but of course you know that's not the way they they see this and they're they're playing I think to their domestic audience which does not necessarily uh, view their own governments as being unremittingly repressive towards them, and they are nationalistic, and they do see these efforts to try to uh, isolate, exclude, etc., um, their country from by the West as an affront of sorts, um, and it's an affront to sort of the nationalist uh, motives and feelings of, of much of the populations and leaders in these in these countries, and so this idea of a summit for democracy. Uh, strikes them as something where the West is trying to use a particular concept to try to uh, really undermine and weaken uh, Russia and China. So they they want to try and push back against it with their own definition of what they think democracy should be, which, of course, is not at all uh, what democracy uh, really is <laughs> in, in the way in which it's understood to be historically and and in theory, in fact. Um, But they're using this as a way of countering what they see as an ideological um, criticism and attack on their own systems, um, which is all. And and the idea of, you know, boycotting the Olympics for political reasons is seen as kind of an affront to to their, in the case of China, sponsorship of the Olympics uh, and therefore an affront to the Chinese people themselves. Uh, put aside, you know, whether or not the Olympics is or is not a non-political event, I, I think that's probably not the case, but that's the line that most countries try to follow in, in, in talking about the Olympics. And so they want to use that boycott as a way of saying that the West is really, you know, in not, not just pressuring us, but also sort of challenging an international norm as a sense about the Olympics and what it means for the world and therefore is challenging us in sponsoring the Olympics.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Michael Swain, who's director of the Quincy Institute's East Asia program and one of the most prominent American scholars of Chinese security studies. Previously, he worked for nearly 20 years as a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, specializing in Chinese defense and foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and East Asian international relations. And he also advises the United States government on Asian security issues, And his books include Remaining Aligned on the Challenges Facing Taiwan and Conflict and Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific Region, a Strategic Net Assessment. So Xi Jinping, along the lines of protesting about interference from the U.S. and attacks on the dignity of their dictatorships, He said, certain international forces under the guise of democracy and human rights are interfering in the internal affairs of China and Russia, whether a country is democratic and how to better realize democracy can only be judged by its own people. Uh, Well, (laughs) it's not as if (laughs) there's any accurate polling going on inside China about how the people feel about the lack of uh, personal freedom, and certainly the same case in, in Russia. But I think what is interesting here, and perhaps pertinent, uh, Michael, is that in terms of polling, as much as we it's reliable, public opinion in Russia, according to the Levada Center, which is an independent pollster, uh, shows that 70% of Russians now have a positive attitude towards China, and that, of course, is far better than their views towards the United States or the European Union, or, and in particular, of course, Ukraine. So would you take those figures to be accurate? Because I've always thought throughout the Cold War, given the fact that both Russia and Communist China had a common enemy, they were always wary of each other. But 70% of the Russian people feeling good about China, that's, that's different, isn't it?
3: Well, yes. I mean, it's, the question is how, how deeply is that rooted and how, and how long it, it would be, in effect, uh, sustained I think it reflects under current conditions the the general kind of confrontation that exists now between um, Putin's Russia and NATO and the West and uh, China and uh, dealing with the United States uh, over Taiwan and other issues and it and it, it 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 just shows that the Russian people believe that as with themselves so the Chinese are also being challenged so um, and that China itself is expressing goodwill towards Russia in, in the face of this Western pressure. Uh, and therefore, they're admiring of, of China as well. And I think the same is true in reverse for the Chinese looking at Russia. Now, this doesn't mean that China and Russia are sort of close bosom buddies of the kind that you would say expect of between the United States and Great Britain, that sort of unique relationship, as people call it, um, the, the Chinese are themselves, they have a history of conflict with Russia. Um, they have had a history of border disputes with Russia. Um, they have had you know, a lot of uh, really nationalistic kinds of confrontations between the two countries and ideological ones when Mao Zedong was running, was running China, of course, and Russia was the Soviet Union. Um, so there's that, there's that on the Chinese side and the Russian side. They don't want to be dominated by, by China. China is by far the more powerful economic power um, between the two of them and has much greater, one could argue, influence uh, geostrategically, geopolitically, geoeconomically than does uh, Russia, except in, along its borders in, in Europe, perhaps. Um, so, you know, Russia itself does not want to be dominated uh, by China. So it, it, I think, continues to want to have a relationship that is close, but not too close. And I think the same is true for the uh, for the Chinese and looking at the Russians. But right now they have a common objective in trying to counter what they see as excessive American and Western uh, pressure and threats um, over the Ukraine issue for the Russians currently and over the Taiwan issue for the for the Chinese towards uh, the United States and in particular.
0: And during the Cold War, I understand that the Kremlin reached out to uh, the White House, uh, I don't know whether it was done in a back channel or what, but suggesting that would the U.S. sanction a Russian preemptive strike against the Chinese nuclear test site before China tested its first nuclear weapon. That's pretty much on the record, isn't it? Mm-hmm.
3: Well, yeah, I think it was in the context of the Sino-Soviet um, confrontation and border dispute. Uh, I don't think it necessarily was about their acquiring a nuclear weapon per se. I think it was um, to do with that border dispute and in some indication of, of the Russians wanting to show the Chinese through a example of a nuclear weapon that they are by far the more powerful country militarily and that the Chinese need to back off and back down. So, you know, yeah, that sort of thing has happened. And, of course, that was back in a a different era and a different time when the two countries really were at a face-off against each other over the whole question of what is socialism and communism and and what uh, role should each country be playing uh, in the overall uh, global scene and to what degree do they threaten each other as sort of heretical um, uh, interpreters of what communism should be. And so that was a very different kind of a confrontation. But nonetheless, those kinds of confrontations and certainly the threat of the possibility of using nuclear weapons in some way is not easily forgotten, even if the times have changed.
0: So the two countries don't have any kind of formal alliance. and They, don't, they certainly don't have the special relationship that you mentioned that the U.S. has with the U.K. Um, right. But it's interesting that China... Never, recognizes, never recognized Putin's annexation of Crimea. And conversely, the Russian side hasn't sided with China over its claims for these islands in the South China Sea, etc. So what would happen, do you think, if Putin invaded Ukraine, which has got Europeans and the US administration worried do you mean what would
3: happen vis-a-vis the Chinese? What they yeah. might do?
0: Yeah. What position would the Chinese take? Because apparently in this conversation, Xi Jinping agreed with Putin that there's a need for the West to sort of back off with, with NATO expansion. But that's well, as far I, as I know I, they went. But right, what happens I mean, if I, they cross the line with a hot war?
3: Well, I think the I do not think the Chinese would sort of full-throatedly endorse. Uh, the the Russians using military force, which they've said they do not intend to do and do not wish to do. uh, But if they indeed, in any case, were to attack and and try to seize Ukraine, the Chinese, I don't think, would, would come out and support that kind of an action. They would try to avoid giving explicit support for that because, in general, they do not support in their public position the idea that one country should invade another sovereign independent state. And they've never endorsed uh, the idea that um, Putin really uh, should or has the authority to um, use military force to invade and seize Ukraine. They, as you say, they never endorsed the Russian seizure of Crimea. And in, in turn, the Russians have not endorsed the Chinese position in the South China Sea, although the Chinese have not used military force in the same way that the Russians have towards uh, the Crimea. So um, the Chinese would try to stay uh, distant from that without however looking as if they were openly and and sharply criticizing um, Putin in in doing so. They would call for restraint, they would call for negotiations, Uh, they would call for some kind of uh, near on peaceful settlement of the situation Um, and the rest of it. Uh, that's I think that's what they would do. One one issue that people have raised is that whether or not the Chinese would take advantage without saying much about it, but take advantage of a Putin attack by attacking Taiwan, and sort of stretching the West thin and and taking that opportunity, if you will. I think as a as an outright attack on Taiwan, I think that's highly unlikely. I think the Chinese would not look at this and say, Oh, wow, now's our chance. We're going to go for it. And try to seize taiwan militarily there's a host of reasons why that makes very little sense for the chinese at this point in time um now that does not to, that's not to say that they might seek to do something diplomatically or there might be some kind of actions that put pressure um economic political even military displays of some kind that would put pressure on on the west um, during a, a context where there was a crisis in europe but an out, outright attack, and one in the near term, I don't think is is very likely at all.
0: Well, Marcus Wain, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
3: Well, thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed it.
0: Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Swain, who's director of the Quincy Institute's East Asia program and one of the most prominent American scholars of Chinese security studies. Previously, he worked for nearly 20 years as a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, specializing in Chinese defense and foreign policy, U.S.-China relations and East Asia international relations. And he also advises the U.S. government on Asian security issues. And his books include Remaining Aligned on the Challenges Facing Taiwan and Conflict and Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific Region, A Strategic Net Assessment. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org